we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 18. So if you want to turn there, you can. And just to give a little bit of context, Ezekiel was a prophet to Israel. And his ministry was approximately uh, 593 to 579 B.C. So he would have been alive at the same time as Daniel. He was born in Judah, but carried away to Babylon with the captivity. And so, as you could guess, he died in Babylon. And so he was the prophet to Israel during this hard time when they were taken from their homeland. And as MacArthur calls him, he could be viewed as a living parable or a living sign because he had a lot of interesting uh, signs and, and like a parables and, acts and, and actions that he did throughout his book, which we're not going to get through all this for today. In fact, we're only going to look at one, but he's a very interesting uh, prophet. And so for chapter 18, I was kind of just looking through my Bible for things to talk about for today. And I was just stopped by chapter 18 because it begins with a proverb. And so, of course, I read the proverb and it didn't really make a lot of sense to me why God would tell them not to use it. And so that's kind of what kind of caught my attention. And then I was trapped and then I started looking through the rest of the chapter. And I was like, well, this is what we're going to talk about for, for, for today. So I'll read the, the verse. I'll start with verse 1. So it says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you, when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? So at first, there may be the question of, well, what does this proverb actually mean? And so... The idea behind this could have come from places like Exodus 20, verse 5, which when God gives the commandments, especially for the second one, he ends it where he's saying that he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth uh, generations of those who, who, who hate him. So a lot of commentators think maybe that would have been the idea behind this proverb. And we've seen it used in other parts of the Old Testament, uh, like in Lamentations 5, we see this exact phrase used, and it's basically Israel, and they're describing, well, they're uh, lamenting for the fact that they're being taken from their homelands. So basically, they're blaming it on the sin of their, their fathers. And so, of course, there's some truth in this, because if, if a past uh, generation sins, sometimes those effects can trickle down to the next one. So that makes sense, but as we'll see in verse 3, uh, there's a problem here, though. And so verse 3 says, As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. So it's very plain here that God rejects the use of this proverb. It's not something that came from Psalms or the book of Proverbs. It's not something that David wrote. This is something that, that they made up. And so the Israelites, clearly, they took this too far. And they were using this proverb to excuse their behavior that was wicked. So if you know anything about the captivity or the time just before that, Israel was nothing really uh, righteous. They were wicked. And so right now, there really was no personal uh, responsibility for their sin. In a sense, the children are the victims, and they're blaming it on their fathers. So our fathers, the ones who did all this sin, they're the reason why we're being captive or uh, exiled and taken to uh, Babylon, it's, it's their fault. And so ultimately they were using this idea to support the idea that God's not fair. 
And we're going to be looking at this further down in the, in the chapter. And so uh, Sproul suggests they had a fatalistic mindset, which basically that means that the destiny of the world is randomly uh, controlled by fate. And, of course, that's not the case. We know that, yes, the destiny of the world is controlled by God, but God also sovereignly uses our choices for his glory. And so it's interesting because they were already told once to not use this proverb, and that was back in Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 29. God says the exact same thing. You shall not use this proverb anymore. And he basically turns the proverb upside down, and he says that whoever eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So it's your teeth. So going back to the second commandment where we started in Exodus, it's clear that the third and the fourth generations, they will be punished and visited. But the reason why is because they're continuing to hate God. So if you read the whole thing in its context, these people, they're continuing to eat the same sour grapes that their fathers ate. And basically what that means is, you know, the teeth that are set on edge, that's just them facing the consequences. So you can imagine if you ate some sour grapes, your teeth would get kind of a weird kind of feeling. So that's kind of what this proverb is trying to uh, describe. And so we go on to verse 4. God says this, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So God's not playing any favorites here. In the end, God's sovereign, and he owns all the souls. And so we're going to see as we continue on, there's a lot of death and life that's mentioned. They get to choose. And so there's two schools of thoughts on what this could be meaning. Some say it's referring to more of a physical death or physical life. And, because, and that would be because the original audience probably would have understood it as more of a physical thing. Because a lot of the Israelites, they associated the soul with the physical body and put more emphasis on the here and now. So that's kind of one view. The other view is that this is talking about more of a spiritual life or a spiritual death. So you have two different views. And in the end, maybe the original audience understood this as more of the physical uh, aspects. But as Christians, we can certainly interpolate this as being spiritual and eternal. And verses like the soul who sins shall die, I mean, clearly that should point us towards verses like Romans 6, uh, 23, which say that the wages of sin are death. So we can see the, the correlation there. So next, God will use two examples to explain this. And that's what these pictures are for. So the first example is going to go through three generations. So we have the grandfather, the father, and then the son. And so... In verses 5 through 9, I'm not going to read all of it, but basically it's describing someone who will call the grandfather, and he is righteous. He's basically obeying the law. He's following the statutes of God. And it says in, the, in verse 9, uh, let's see, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. So this hypothetical situation, the grandfather is just, and he shall live. So we can also look at what does it mean to be called just or righteous, especially in the Old Testament. So, and again, there's different varying thoughts, especially for this chapter. It's not quite as clear because like when we see Abraham being called righteous, there's not a ton of debate on that. 
But on this chapter, there is some uh, debate on what does it mean to actually be righteous. And so some say that uh, this is talking about one's position before God. And so this is similar to the righteousness that Abraham had before God, which, of course, is by faith. We know that by looking at the book of, of Hebrews. But this just or righteousness does not mean totally free from sin because no one is totally free. It just means, as John Gill says, evangelically through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ unto him. And so he's saying that this refers more to the inward frame of mind and it's distinct from the actions. And I sometimes look at gotquestions.com because I think that's a helpful uh, website. They define it as this. In the Old Testament, men were declared righteous when they believed God and acted on it. They pursued righteousness by keeping God's law, seeking holiness, and walking humbly with God. So no one was justified by rule-keeping, but by the faith that enabled them to obey. And then the other school of thought would be that this is just purely talking about one's outward behavior or, or actions. And so if that's the case, then this is a different kind of righteousness than what is talked about when we talk about the righteousness of Abraham or, or Noah. And so in the end, probably it is maybe a blend of both because the original audience, we have to remember that they were wicked. Uh, they might not even have understood. They clearly didn't un- understand anything about faith, but they might not even have un- understood the, uh, the, uh, the law. And so... Maybe they did not understand, but again, as Christians, I think we can, we can understand how this is talking about things that are eternal and, and spiritual. And so if we continue on with God's example in verses 10 through 13, it describes the second generation, which is the, the father. And he actually does the opposite of his father, the grandfather. So he doesn't walk in God's statutes. He just does everything uh, uh, wickedly. And so in verse 13, the, the question is, shall the father live just because his father was righteous? Well, the answer is no. So we have a father here that is wicked. So I'll give, give him an X. So the righteousness from the grandfather is not imputed or given to this father. That's not how, uh, how it works. And so that the father who was wicked, he can't rest in the fact that, oh, well, my father was righteous, so maybe I'll just be, you know, I'll join the club because of his uh, righteousness. That's just not how God works. And so we continue on in verses 14 through 17. And there we're describing, or God is describing to us the third generation, and we'll call him the son. So I gave him a, a rattle because maybe he's more like a baby, <laughs> just for sake of clarity. <laughs> so he actually does the opposite of his wicked father. And so he is actually righteous. He walks in the steps of his righteous grandfather. And so he does the opposite of his father. He turns. He repents. Um, Towards the end of that, in verse uh, 17, we see that he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. So we can ask the same question here. Should that son, should he die for the sins of his father? Well, God says no. That's not how it works. And as the preacher's commentary says, God treats people as individuals. And this is different for how he may treat a nation. But just because you live in a wicked world or from an unbelieving family, it doesn't mean that you must miss out on salvation. 
But that being said, if you are in a wicked uh, nation, then you could be caught up in the judgment for that nation overall. And so that's what I think the Israelites were getting confused with this parable. And so in verse 18, we see that clearly the second generation father is still responsible for his sins. So he can't claim the righteousness from the past and he can't give his wickedness to the future. He's stuck with it. And so verses 19 and 20, I'll read these. It says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So it's pretty clear that each person is, uh, person is responsible for their own be, uh, behavior. And so in the end, they'll be judged on their own record. And so God's second example, which is over on the right, or, yeah, the right side of the board, is going to involve a wicked man who turns to righteousness and then a righteous man who turns to wickedness. So God's going to go even deeper into this question of is God unfair? And so I'll read verses 21 and 22. It says, But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. So this is describing we'll put, put this person on top. He starts out wicked and then he does a turn and then he's righteous. That's basically what's what's going on here. And so taken out of context these chapters seem to be pointing towards salvation by works. And a lot of people will do this. But when read in context with the rest of this chapter, with the rest of the book of Ezekiel, and of course with the rest of the Bible, this is not the case. Because we know that works are a product of faith, and the works are what prove the faith. Which is what, where, what, what we see in, in James. And so, verse 21, it's describing... The wicked man who's turning from his sins, he's repenting, and he turns to God and obeys his statutes. In verse 22, we see that even the transgressions of his past are forgotten. And so the pulpit commentary says that the judgment of God deals with each man according to his present state, not his past character or pre-conversion identity. And so as Christians, this is nothing really new because we're born again. So God has no record of our past wrongs because we're washed with the blood of Christ. So uh, as Matthew Henry says, and he defines the last part of verse 22, he renders it as in his righteousness that he hath done, he liveth. So I think what he says is helpful. He says that it's not for their righteousness as if that were the purchase of their pardon and bliss and an atonement for their sins, but it is in their righteousness, which qualifies them for all the blessings purchased by the mediator and is itself one of those blessings. So Matthew Henry views this righteousness as an object given to them by God, and it's tied back to their faith. And 
Matthew Henry kind of points us to Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10, which we probably know quite, quite well here. And we know it starts out in verse 8 that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, and, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we know clearly here it's not by works that we're saved. It's by faith. And ultimately it's by grace. Uh, but further on, towards verse 10, we do see that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the works are a part of this. Obviously, they don't come first, but they come after the faith. So the faith enables us to have the good works. And so that's kind of what Matthew Henry is, is arguing here. It's still kind of confusing, and I think a lot of commentators, they suggest going back to the covenant of the Old Testament that uh, Moses would have given them, which came from God. But that would have been kind of the starting point for these people during the captivity. So if we buckle up and go back to Deuteronomy, uh, I thought it was more helpful in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 30. And this is where the covenant is actually reiterated. So it's not the first time. But Moses, he reiterates the covenant before Israel enters the promised land. And so in these few chapters, he describes the curses, the blessings, and he even prophesizes that eventually Israel will turn to idols. And as a result of all this sin, they will be taken exile or as exiles to another land. And so Moses actually kind of prophesizes this event that we're looking at now. But it's interesting because especially in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, there's similar language to Ezekiel. So, for instance, verses 2 and 3, they say it's talking about uh, God is he's asking them to return to to him because he knows they're going to be in captivity. But even in the book of Ezekiel, there's always a call to return and repent back to God. And so that's kind of what the context is for this chapter in in chapter uh, 30 of Deuteronomy. So in verse 2 it says, And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. So we see here the heart is mentioned. And we know if we look back at Deuteronomy 6, that they are supposed to be loving God with all their hearts, minds, and souls. Okay? And so far... For most of the book of, De- of Deuteronomy, Moses is explaining how can they do this through the law. And so the problem is that they can't do this because no one can keep the law perfectly. And ultimately, it's a problem in the heart. And so it's not just about following the external rules. There's also some things that have to be going on internally to fulfill this, this law. And so verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30 is the solution. And it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that's kind of the solution to Deuteronomy. God needs to give them this new heart that they can follow his law and obey. And and ultimately that they will live. And now this is similar because Ezekiel, of course, is also talking about following God's statutes obeying him so that you may live. And so 
Moses keeps on going on in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 30, and he's explaining why this isn't too mysterious or too far off for the Israelites to, to, to understand. They don't have to go up to heaven, and they don't have to go down to the sea to understand these, uh, these things. Moses says in verse 14 that the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And so if you combine this with the fact that they need a new heart, then it seems that they're responsible to keep this, this law or to keep this righteousness by faith. And the, the faith is ultimately that God will give them this, this new heart. And so if right now we're in Deuteronomy 30, I think we can make the jump to Romans 10. And this is actually, I listened to uh, a podcast by Alex uh, Hamilton, who came here probably a year ago and did his conference on Psalms. And he links this to Romans chapter 10. And, and Paul also does, because Paul actually quotes the same uh, passage in that chapter. So if we look at Romans 10, uh, verses 4 through 10 is what we're going to focus on for just a little bit. So for verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So for the Christian, Christ is the end or the culmination of the law. Of, of righteousness. I mean, this isn't anything too new. He fulfilled the old covenant. In verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So Paul here starts out with talking about the righteousness of the law. So if you want to live, you need to do these things externally and internally into a, a T. And we already know that's impossible. We can't do that. And so Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7. He compares this to the righteousness of faith. So it says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So the first part that Paul quotes, he says, Do not say in your heart. A similar thing. God told a similar thing to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9. Basically, when they were, when, uh, well, he was saying, eventually, you'll come into the, the, the promised land. And when you do, do not say in your heart that we did this for our own uh, righteousness or because we were good. God's, that's not what God's saying. So, what Paul's, why Paul is using this is because they're not earning anything by their righteousness or faith. I mean, sorry, their righteousness or, or works. That's not what is producing this. And so, of course, Paul follows through and he's, he uses the same, he quotes what, what Moses says in Deuteronomy and explains that you don't have to go up to heaven or down to the sea to obtain this information. It's been revealed to us by, by God through his word. And so verse 9, of course, is a little more well known. It, it goes that, if you confess with your mouth that the Lord uh, Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be, be saved. So he explains how this all leads to e eternal life. And we probably uh, remember that verse, I would think. And so what a lot of commentaries say is that the, uh, the righteousness that is pr uh, produced by faith here, that's what ultimately Paul is talking about. And that's what as Christians we we, we, we have our righteousness is produced by our faith in Christ. They make the point that Moses and Paul are pointing, pointing to the same idea, and ultimately they're pointing to Christ. 
because you can't fulfill the law without Christ. And so the common theme from these two chapters, from Deuteronomy and Romans, is the heart. And so without this new heart, the good works are worthless. And we'll see just a little bit in Ezekiel, well, we'll be in chapter 18, but the last verse, verse 31, directly deals with the new heart that Israel needs. And so, yes, if we look at these two verses just alone, it's kind of hard. It's like, I don't know how to uh, answer that. But if we just finish the chapter, it'll make a lot more sense. So in verse 22, we'll just hold that thought for a second about, about the heart. In verse 22, we see that God says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? We're not going to spend a ton of time with that, um, but it relates very well to what we see in the New Testament, right? We have similar verses in uh, places like First Timothy and Second Peter. Um, as we continue on, in verse 24, I'll read this. It says, But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be re uh, remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. So this is kind of the second part of example number two. We start with someone who's called righteous, and then he actually turns, and now he's called wicked. And so I don't think that this is de uh, describing someone who was uh, sincere. I think it's pretty clear that this is describing someone who's never a sincere uh, follower in the first place. And so maybe they were trusting that their own righteousness would be enough to earn God's favor, and maybe it would outweigh the bad in the end. But as we've already talked about, God's looking at the condition of the present, not the past and not the future. So, as Wiersbe says, from Adam to now, people are only saved by faith in what God has revealed to them. And their faith is demonstrated by a consistently godly life. And we see similar things like this example in books like First John, which we've just uh, completed. But we see there that there's some people who you know, in chapter 2, that went out from us, but they were not of us. So clearly these, peop these people maybe have the right words, maybe even the right actions, but ultimately their hearts were not in the right area. And so in verse 25, this is the problem. It says, Yet you say, the Israelites, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair, in your ways, which are not fair. So the problem is that the Israelites are still calling God unfair. And they're citing, they're using this proverb and other uh, proverbs too to just back that up. But of course, God is rebuking them because their thought process is just, it's just wrong. So I think Wiersbe says a helpful thing about this. He says that when the people obeyed the Lord, they wanted to they wanted God to keep his uh, portion of the, the covenant, especially the part that promised the, the blessings. That makes sense. When we are good, we, we want the blessings. But when they disobeyed, they didn't want God to keep the terms of the covenant that brought the chastening and the punishment. And that's just human nature. We are the same way. And so, in a sense, they wanted God to act contrary to his word and to his promises. And so, 
ultimately, the Israelites were the ones who are not fair. God is fair, and if, if God's ever unfair, it's usually to the advantage of the believer because, you know, it's, it's really not fair that we should be saved from our sins in the first place. But moving on, verses uh, 29, or sorry, well, okay, so backing up, one common thing, or one thing I thought was interesting is uh, not a lot has changed because people today still say that God's not fair or he, he's not just. And so not much has really changed. But the problem is that the people who say those things have the wrong understanding of who God is, and they're trying to, to make God fit into their own box, or it's essentially their own God. So that's basically what the problem is. We're not going to dive too deep in that for right now, but it's common today to, to hear that exact same phrase. And so in verses 26 through 29, we're not going to read them, but God actually restates his example number two. So he says essentially the same thing. And the emphasis is on, is God really being unfair to the Israelites? In verse 30, it says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that the iniquity will not be your ruin. So in verse 30, it starts out that it seems like judgment is coming, and maybe God's just tired of being called unfair. He's had it. But the second part of verse 30, again, it highlights God's patience and mercy. So he's telling them to repent and turn from all their sin. The pulpit commentary says that this is the grand exception to the order of punishment. Of course, there's, there's no getting around the fact that we're all sinners and we all deserve death. But we see that the soul, as a Christian, we, we know that the soul that does not sin, who is Jesus, he dies for the souls that do sin. He comes in grace, his act is voluntary, and that's where the hope is. And so he, God will judge everyone, but he continues to call people to repentance. And so the final verse, verse 31, it says this, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So this is really the key for the whole chapter. And we can see here clearly that each of us will be judged by our works, but only God can make us righteous. And as Christians, we know that that's because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so... In other scripture, I think Ezekiel 36 is a little more clear about this idea of heart. It's not This idea of a new heart is uh, pretty well known for the book of Ezekiel. It's probably one of the first things that people can think about. If I were just to tell you what does the book of Ezekiel say. And so if we look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27 say this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so here, this all ties back to Ezekiel 18, Deuteronomy 30, Romans 10. The common theme is this, this new heart that they need. And it's very clear that the Israelites are not able to get this heart by themselves. 
It's just like you can't do heart surgery on, on yourself. That's impossible. And so what Matthew Henry says, he says that there's four things that we should do after reading this. He says that we should repent and be sorry for our sins. The second thing is to turn ourselves from our sin. The idea here is a 180-degree turn. The third thing is abandon and forsake our sins, so break all leagues with sin. And that's what we're kind of seeing with this example of the wicked person who turns to, his, to uh, righteousness and turns to following God. The only, the only thing is we don't really see what's happening behind these scenes or internally. If you look at that just from verses 21 through 22, you just see the works. But if you go down to verse 31, you see there's a lot more going on here than just works. There's a heart change. And then the fourth thing that Matthew Henry says is that we should get ourselves a new heart and spirit. And so uh, a conclusion would be, first, the wicked Israelites were blaming their forefathers for the captivity. So they were claiming innocence, even though they were far from being uh, righteous. They were very uh, wicked at that time. And they were calling God unfair to them. And so God shows that this is false. First, by comparing the past generations and saying, you cannot transfer any wickedness and you cannot transfer any righteousness. You're responsible for your own sin. And then secondly, he does this to, he's the other example of the righteous person who was not really, his heart wasn't right in in the first place. and He falls to wickedness and then the wicked person who has a heart change and then becomes righteous. And so... We see that in both examples, there is a choice to pursue either life or death, righteousness or wickedness. And so each person is responsible, and, and God ultimately judges them based on their present state. And so righteousness, as we know, requires loving God with your whole heart, mind, soul. And then, of course, the problem is we can't do this on our own. We can't ever even hope to achieve that. So... This is only possible with the new heart which we've looked at, and this circumcision of the heart can only be done by God. And so ultimately, it's not about the works that we do, and so none of us can boast. So that fits directly with Ephesians 2. And so as, uh, as Wearsby says, whether people lived before or after the cross, the way of salvation is, is the same. Faith in the, lo- the Faith in the Lord that is evidenced by a new life of obedience. And so, in the end, we know that God will judge, and he also extends his, his mercy, though. If one repents, they'll be forgiven and can be enabled to live a righteous life. And really, that's our only hope for this day of judgment that is coming. It's, it's ultimately through Christ. And so, Ezekiel ends with the, the call to therefore turn and live. That's how Moses ends. or He talks about that in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 30 turn and live. So we see this call being made over and over again. And so that's what I'm going to stop with and leave us with to think about for today. So are there any comments or questions about this chapter?
Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. I think this was probably pretty prevalent in that day of, of old, but like what Uncle Ray is saying, it's prevalent for today too. And the idea of generational uh, curses, that's a popular thing too, and that's refuted too by this. And we know that Christ has redeemed us from every curse, so that means any kind of generational curse, it just doesn't make any sense. Christ can redeem from anything. Any other questions or comments? Okay, well, thank you for your time.